Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, we're going to talk about the experiences of American companies operating in China. Now, as, as listeners are probably aware, companies can be pretty cagey when talking about their experiences. Uh, they, they might be worried about getting punished by the Chinese government or even getting a tweet from the president. So many of them choose to be represented by industry groups, by lobby groups. The US-China Business Council is one of those. It's, it's basically a business association representing American companies that operate in China. Now, clearly the U.S.-China Business Council, or the U.S.-CBC, because they represent businesses, their interests are are pretty obvious. They're trying to help American companies make profits in China. And that's fine, but they also do something else. Each year, they run a survey of their members, which a bunch of people cite and use to get a sense of what doing business in China is actually like. We're going to talk about their latest survey, which was published in August. We're going to talk to Jake Parker, who is the current senior vice president at the U.S.-China Business Council, the U.S.-CBC. But first, we'll speak to Erin Ennis, their former senior vice president, and the one who actually ran the most recent survey, as well as that same survey for the last 14 years. We tracked her down when she was traveling in Asia. Erin, hello. Hi. Thanks so much for being with us. So, so can you give us a bit of, of history of this, this survey? Certainly. The timeline precedes a little bit when China was in the WTO, but the whole point of this has always been as an assessment year to year of how companies believe that China is doing in terms of what the WTO set out. And then, frankly, in recent years, once all of the WTO accession commitments, deadlines at least, had been met, how companies felt that China was doing in terms of treating foreign companies versus domestic companies. And so this is a survey that's in response to a general U.S. government call for public comment on how China is doing, but it's not something that's directly tied to the U.S. government. It's not It's not funded by the U.S. government. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the nuts and bolts of actually running the survey? How does this work? Is the, is the questionnaire sent out to a, a mailing list? The invitation to take the survey goes out to all of the members. It is open to anyone who wants to answer it. It means we get a variety of answers from people who work for American companies doing business in China. In the early years, we asked early questions about how do you think that you are able to access distribution services? So that is, how are you able to sell a product directly to a Chinese customer? In later years, what we've asked is questions about how you're faring against competing in with Chinese state-owned enterprises, or how do you feel that China's economic reforms that have been announced are treating the issues that you are dealing with. USCBC at this point has approximately 200 members. We set the target of 100 responses from 100 members, so roughly half of the membership responding to the questions so that we have a good sense of where at least a cross-section of U.S.-China Business Council members are viewing the market. Can I ask a slightly nerdy question about uh, essentially weighting of the responses? Yes. So, so am, am I right in thinking that that it's not you know one response per company? In, in theory, you could get multiple responses per company and, and that all the responses are weighted the same? 
That is correct. In general, in any given year, there may be two or three companies where more than one person responds. What I can tell you in looking at the data over 14 years is those multiple responses rarely give the exact same answers. So in general, the nuance that we see between the responses have to do with whether the respondent is based in the U.S. operations of a company or whether they're based in the China operations of the company, because that perception definitely informs how you view the issues that you might be dealing with in the market. Before the the recent trade tensions, what problems did the survey tend to pick up? In general, the problems were exactly the same. It was issues of competition with Chinese companies, be they state enterprises or privately owned, problems in all of the regulatory processes that you have to deal with as a, a company doing business in China. So approvals of licenses to do business, whether you have effective enforcement of your intellectual property rights, whether the laws are enforced equally against you as a foreign company. So maybe let's turn to the, the Section 301 report and talk a little bit about that. So which parts of the responses of the survey do you think were the ones that that most justified the Trump administration's actions here? What what parts of the report really actually reflect the complaints that the companies are making in these surveys? So the, the two key issues that relate to the Section 301 investigation are concerns about intellectual property rights protection and technology transfer requests. I think there's probably two things to keep in mind on this one. The first one is that while IP protection is improving in the market, it's not consistent because China's judicial system and its regulatory system don't have consistency across the country. You can bring a product into China and think that you've registered everything properly, but if a locality has a company that chooses to try to rip off your trademark or your patent and the local court system doesn't agree with what you believe is your well-established right, frankly, you have very little recourse. Those things are improving, but it's still a significant difference in terms of how you might be treated in other comparable markets around the world. And as a consequence, it's why the reason, among the reasons why intellectual property rights protection and improvements in that is something that the business community has been consistently supportive of the U.S. government pursuing both with the Trump administration and previous administrations. Technology transfer is the other key issue that was in the Section 301 investigation. And this is one that's a little more nuanced in the survey data that the U.S.-China Business Council has. We have seen from data over the years that few companies get outright requests for technology transfer. So it's not a matter of any foreign company that goes into the market having an explicit tie to their ability to invest in the market being contingent upon their transferring technology and losing control of it. In general, those outright requests are pretty small in number. And once you start getting into the nuance of what that contract looks like, they are things that many companies can mitigate. But importantly, there are companies that cannot mitigate that. So if you are bringing your technology to China, you get a request to transfer technology that is very clearly going to be contingent upon you being able to do business in the market or not. Then you have to make a determination about whether you want to be in the second largest economy in the world or not. What can we learn from from this year's survey about how the trade war is going for these companies? The survey is done every year around June 
And so last year when we asked the survey, it was the first time we asked whether companies, businesses had been affected by U.S.-China trade tensions. That was roughly a month before the first round of tariffs related to the Section 301 case were put into place. And at that point, almost three-quarters of U.S.-China Business Council members reported that they felt that they had been affected by it. In 2019, one year later, at that point, Three rounds of tariffs have been implemented, but we hadn't moved forward on list four. That number had risen to about 80% of members saying that they had been affected. Now, part of the challenge of interpreting this data is you have to keep in mind, China is an incredibly challenging place to do business for any company, be you Chinese or foreign. And so the ways that companies identify that they feel that they are being affected have a pretty high overlap of the areas that the U.S.-China Business Council survey has identified over the years as areas where companies felt they were being discriminated against. So when you look at the data from 2018 and 2019, a lot of companies reported that they felt that they were being They had higher levels of scrutiny from their regulators versus their Chinese counterparts, or they felt like there were other issues in terms of how they were being treated in the market. The main difference that you can see in the data from 2019 is the number of companies who are reporting that they have lost sales either because of the tariffs that China or the United States has implemented, or they have lost opportunities because customers believe that the uncertainty of buying a product from an American company in the midst of all of the tensions has uh, made them want to look at a non-U.S. competitor. All of this data at this point I would say is probably at best anecdotal. We are looking at companies who are telling us that some of the economic data definitely drives back to what their sales numbers are looking like. But for anything that you're talking about increased scrutiny or delays in licenses, we don't actually have enough evidence to be able to say definitively that American companies are being targeted. But certainly we're starting to build the anecdotal evidence that American companies are experiencing some differences in how they're being treated versus other foreign companies and certainly versus other domestic Chinese companies. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was Erin Ennis, the former Senior Vice President of the US-China Business Council. Next, we're going to talk to her successor, Jake Parker. He arrived in DC earlier this year, but before that, he was based in Beijing, also working for for the US CBC. And and in that role, he engaged with the Chinese government, mainly at the the federal level in Beijing, but also uh, liaising between companies and local officials. I started by pointing out that the survey shows that the vast majority of US China Business Council members are in fact profitable in China. Now, now I suppose the unprofitable ones might have left and and in theory there could be unfair treatment alongside these companies being profitable. But but I asked him what he thought the best evidence was that these companies are actually being treated unfairly given that so many of them seem to be making money. One of the key aspects of the survey that that I focus on is 
optimism over the long term. And what we see is in the survey, optimism is moderating over time. Now, obviously, the most significant issue that exists today is the U.S.-China bilateral trade relationship. However, when we look longer term and at this long-term optimism, what we hear and see in the survey data is that companies are more concerned about their ability to compete on a level playing field in the medium and long term. Um, many note that the market access environment from a licensing perspective, if you are a domestic Chinese company, the, the time it takes to get a license approved, the time it takes for a product to go through a product approval is faster than a, than a foreign company. We also see that in areas like financial services that have been recently liberalized, that there are already numbers of Chinese companies that operate in those sectors and have captured huge market share. Uh, that's been open technically for a year and a half and not a single US company has yet received a license. So every day that those licensing processes drag on is a day that a U.S. company can't be competitive with a domestic Chinese company. You mentioned technology transfer as a problem some companies might face. And I guess that would happen when companies were forced to enter into those joint ventures or the JVs with their local Chinese counterparts. And the authorities could basically force companies to hand over their technology as a, as a condition for entering in the market. At least that's the allegation. But if you look at the survey, the share of companies that say they've been asked to, to do this, to transfer their technology, it seems really low, only about 5% of, of the members. And yet this is the problem the Trump administration is using in part to, to justify the trade war with China. Why do you think they're making such a big deal about it when the numbers on this actually seem so low? Uh, sure, Chad. So I think there are probably three main reasons. First, Companies have operated in the China market over time. As you know, there were many market access restrictions that forced U.S. companies into joint ventures in the past. And since China joined the WTO, many of those have fallen. So U.S. companies are not entering into the China market in JVs like they did long ago. The second reason is because of this historical perspective, we've seen that many of the technology transfers have happened in the past. So much of the toothpaste is out of the tube. The third is that because the U.S. Trade Representative in the Section 301 report has been so high profile and has been raised with the Chinese government, I think there's a sensitivity on the Chinese side to not explicitly requesting technology transfer in the last year in particular. Okay, so, so this tech transfer happened in the past, and as the joint venture requirements have been relaxed, it's, it's less of a problem now. And you're saying that the Chinese government might be more careful about making these tech transfer uh, requests. With all of that in mind, how did members react when the Trump administration started this investigation into, into China's trade and investment practices? So when our member companies first heard about the Section 301 investigation, they agreed with many of the issues raised by the Trump administration. They were concerned, however, about adopting the tactic of tariffs because of the issues that that raises for companies primarily with retaliation. And indeed, after the $50 billion was implemented, companies immediately saw retaliation from the Chinese government. And frequently, these types of retaliations are not very obvious or easily able to track. For example, customs clearance investigations increased precipitously. One of our member companies was importing automobiles from the United States, and they had their environmental emissions systems checked at the border. Unfortunately, for this check to be fully implemented, the entire emission system had to be deconstructed part by part from the vehicle. So the entire vehicle had to be taken apart, each individual item 
checked to ensure that it met the requirements of China. That, of course, made the, the car unsellable in the China market. In another example, we saw one-week quarantine period added to U.S. cherries. Unfortunately, after that one-week quarantine period was over, those cherries had spoiled and were no longer able to be sold into the China market. So these are the sorts of non-tariff barriers that we began to see implemented at the local level immediately after the implementation of the Section 301 and the tariffs. What about examples of retaliation that we're seeing today? And you know, are there also examples of, of things taking place within China, not at the border, but you know, in the Chinese economy where a lot of these companies are operating domestically? When we talk to our member companies today, they note a sensitivity from the Chinese government towards ensuring a stable market environment because they do not want foreign investors to be scared off from investing there. Foreign capital investment remains a key part of China's GDP growth. Many Chinese government officials advance in China because of their contributions to local GDP growth, their unemployment rate, social stability. And as a result, they want to continue to encourage foreign investors to be in the market. And we've heard recently that many local governments have called in foreign, foreign companies to understand the challenges they're experiencing there and try and resolve those challenges. That being said, we have seen some issues where foreign companies have seen some initial retaliation. And it's important to note that this is not a central government-directed retaliation. It's much more organic and bottom-up. For example, we've heard from some companies in government procurement that there has been unequal treatment towards U.S. suppliers. One company noted that this is a direct ban that's articulated by a tendering agency. Sometimes there's a preference written in the tendering document for a specific amount of domestic content, so a percentage has to be made by a Chinese company. We've also heard from members that U.S. companies are sometimes considered to be unreliable suppliers by the Chinese counterparts because of issues like the Huawei decision, but also as well because of the, the tariffs that are in place and the potential volatility of the pricing of their products. Another way that we're seeing some retaliation is in IP enforcement being politicized. We have a number of U.S. companies that are suing their domestic Chinese counterparts for IP infringement where technology has been stolen or transferred and then tried to be commercialized in the local market. China's courts operate where there needs to be a ruling within a set period of time. Many judges are continuing to delay those rulings because of the overall atmospherics of the relationship. And this is, again, not necessarily because of any directive from the top, but there is a feeling that any decision that's made, both a ruling in favor of a U.S. company or against it, could be viewed as a negatively from the top. So they're making a political choice to not act, which is safer than any other decision that they could possibly make. The last is, and this one's the most obvious, but it's one that maybe gets less, less press, and that is... U.S. companies are being cut out of China's existing economic reforms. We've seen a number of tariff rates cut this year, which Europeans, Japanese, South American companies are all being able to enjoy. But because of the bilateral trade conflict and the tariffs that China has raised in response to retaliate against the United States, U.S. companies are unable to take advantage of those. So not only is their prices rising from the retaliatory tariffs, but other European and internationals are, are actually having lower prices because the general tariff rate has decreased. How easy is it for companies to, to come forward and complain about any unfair treatment that they're facing? 
Companies are always hesitant to raise their concerns publicly about any policy or regulatory issue in, frankly, any market where they operate. That is amplified in the Chinese market because of fear of, of retaliation, that if you find an instance of forced technology transfer, that, that, will, that by reporting that to the central government, the local government would retaliate against the company. Getting to the kind of the core of this question is something that, that I've been thinking a bit about and have talked to some of our members on the ground about. There is a significant disconnect between the messages that companies present to the U.S. government and those messages that they deliver to the Chinese. If you've ever sat in a room with a U.S. business delegation meeting with a Chinese official, all you would hear about is the significant investment that they've made in the respective province or country. You'd hear about how profitable the company is, how much support they've received from the local government. And, and certainly that represents one side of the coin, but there's almost overwhelming positive inputs with limited criticism. However, when they return to the United States and they're speaking to government officials, either from their congressional district or with the administration directly, they're more honest and more direct about the challenges they're experiencing there. So one of, the, one of my concerns is that this disconnect between the messages that both governments receive leads to a misunderstanding of how serious these challenges are for companies. China doesn't get the full picture, and the U.S. gets probably a supercharged negative perception of how bad the environment is in China without the nuance of the, the holistic understanding of the profits and the revenue and how those revenues benefit the United States. I suppose another reason why companies might not be complaining right now, even if really bad things are going on, is they're worried about potentially their stock prices. Is that a realistic concern? It's true that companies consider the stock price on any public exchange when making any major decision. I don't think that there's a concern about complaining to the Chinese government that would impact their stock price. However, I've heard consistently from many in our membership that there is a feeling if they speak up too vocally or too loudly about the concerns about how the U.S.-China trade conflict is negatively impacting their operations or speak too positively about the benefits of a commercial relationship with China, that there could be potentially some in the U.S. administration who would very publicly call a company out that would have a much more negative and deleterious impact on their stock prices. And, and we have seen some evidence of this in the past of others who have perhaps been highlighted in ways that we haven't seen in the past publicly when, they, when they've said things that uh, contradicted what the, the administration's positioning was. What are you hearing about how companies are actually responding today to the trade tensions? There are a couple of ways that our companies are responding to the trade conflict today. The first is in their investment decisions. What we are seeing many of our companies continue to invest and accelerate their investments in the China market. Most of them see China's market as a significant driver of global economic growth in the decade ahead. You need to be in China manufacturing there to be able to access that growth. One of the concerns I hear from the administration frequently is, why can't we make more widgets in the United States? Or why are they making those toys in China? And the reason is, is we can't be price competitive if we're manufacturing in the United 
United States, paying the logistics cost to enter the China market, paying a value-added tax to enter the China market, then paying the tariff that China has imposed on a retaliatory basis. So companies need to be in China to be cost competitive there going forward. The second is in investment decisions, our companies are looking at how they can diversify their supply chains to ensure they don't over-rely on the China market. The Section 301 investigation and the tariffs that have been imposed have showed many of our companies that they are uh, there is too much risk or they have an over uh, there's too much risk in their supply chain today and they do need to be able to have a shift to to other markets in the future so what we're seeing is that investments that would have gone to china in the past for export platform as and where china is being used as an export platform to other markets are now going to to third markets instead as we record this chinese and american officials are meeting and and talking again how optimistic should we be about the, the state of the negotiations? My sense is, is that we've seen a shift in the Chinese tactics for engagement with the United States just in the last few weeks. After President Trump and President Xi met in Osaka, there was a misunderstanding between the two sides on what was expected. And I think recently we've learned that there was a quid pro quo where the United States would offer export licenses to allow Huawei, that company I mentioned earlier, to receive continued sales from certain companies in the United States. In exchange, China would then buy U.S. agricultural products. What I think we've seen in the last week is that the Chinese have realized that so much of the bilateral conflict today is being decided by President Trump individually that they need to show visible progress in the bilateral relationship and the trade talks to help build a better atmospheric going forward. So last week, the Chinese did make a fairly significant purchase of agricultural products. That was viewed very positively by President Trump. He tweeted about it. Now the negotiating team is in Washington, D.C. It's being led by a different person than it has been led in the past by Vice Minister Liao Min, as opposed to Vice Minister Wang Shouwen. Vice Minister Liao Min is a member of a reform leading group within China that's coordinated and headed by the Vice Premier Liu He. He's known to be very close to the Vice Premier. And as a result, he specifically focuses on the structural issues and the market reforms that are so critical to the U.S. government. So it's our hope at the U.S.-China Business Council that he's bringing some concessions that can be made on the structural side. Much of the, the purchases piece, that, that's done. I think the question for us is while China's tone has been more positive in the last couple of weeks, we haven't seen a shift in the U.S. side. The expectations for a deal remain very high in terms of standards of the deal. So forced technology transfer, IPR protection, market access level playing field, overcapacity, subsidies, industrial policy. These issues all are at the core of what the U.S. expects from any finalized agreement, and it's unclear if the Chinese will be able to, to meet that high expectation. I think we're pleased now that things seem to be going in the right direction, but we'll have to wait and see in early October when the vice premier comes to the United States, and then October 15th when the tariffs have been delayed to, to see how serious they are about moving this thing to conclusion. Jake, thank you very much. Thank you. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Erin Ennis and Jake Parker, the former and current senior vice presidents at the U.S.-China Business Council. We will make sure to post a link to the latest U.S.-CBC member survey on the episode page at our website. That's 
www.tradetalkspodcast.com. And thank you also to Colin Warren, who handles our audio. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because talking to two senior vice presidents of the U.S.-China Business Council is better than one.